Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. The past weeks, we've gone back to talk about what Paul in Romans calls the analogy of faith, or we could call it the rule of faith, which is really just a summation of the essential points of the gospel. We could really just say the gospel. And this gospel, faith, or this rule of faith, as we saw last week, it's the same thing as taking into ourselves the mind of Christ. That is, this is the way that we begin to see the world. We see all things through the mind of Christ. And I think what Paul's talking about, we talked about last week with 1 Corinthians, that we literally develop a critical faculty based on the essential points of the gospel message. As I'll remind you of the verse, uh, 1 Corinthians 2, 15 to 16, He says, we judge or ascertain all things on the basis of Christ. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And so a key part of this rule or maybe it's more accurate to say a goal or even the guiding principle of the rule is the peace of Christ. Obviously it's this peace, this nonviolent love of Christ that is definitive of who Christ is. We see him on a cross, but the apostles, all of whom will die other than John, a martyr's death. But in the early church, this peaceful rule of Christ It was the guiding understanding, and that's really what I want to demonstrate this morning. I'm going to use the example of origin of Alexandria, who in, you know, the second and third century is one of the key leaders in the church. But before we turn to origin, let's summarize the biblical point. And that is, I think this is thematic. There are several key phrases in scripture that talk about this rule of faith, this gospel, the analogy of faith. Uh, In Romans 12, 6, Paul says, you know, we have many different gifts according to the grace and the picture there, uh, you know, that each is apportioned a certain amount of grace. Each of us is to exercise it accordingly. If prophecy according to the proportion of this faith... And actually the Greek there is analogia tes pisteos. That is according to the analogy of faith. It is the rule of faith is a way of translating that. If you look at Romans 12, 3, for through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought. And of course, we're always dealing with thinking. We're dealing with judging. We're dealing with measuring when we're talking about this. He says, but think as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. And the word measure here, I think has a kind of double meaning. You know, we were given a certain measure, but it's also by faith that we measure things. 
That becomes our rule. Ephesians 4.13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, and here it is again, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Christ is the measure. Christ is the rule. Christ is the means of apprehending and understanding. We judge by the measure of faith. It is what is given by God, but it also has the meaning of you're having sound judgment, like as if you are judging according to the mind of Christ. And so a key part of this measure, of this rule, of this gospel, is the peace of Christ. So it's no longer the measure of the law. You know, that's what the law does. It's a, a measuring stick. But we no longer measure according to the law, but the measure is Christ. And by this measure, his, the measure of peace and love is instituted. So let's read the verse from Ephesians 2, 14 to 18. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. That is, we used to measure according to the law, but this law was hostile. It created hostility between Jews and Gentiles. But we can just think of this measure of man as always creating hostility. But the measure of Christ will create unity and peace. So that in himself he might make the two into one new man. That is, there's divisions among people, Jews and Gentiles, but those divisions no longer define us. Thus, establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. The picture is we have the mind of Christ. We have the spirit of Christ. We have access to God through Christ. In 3.10 he sums this up. This is so that God's multifaceted wisdom. You want to have true wisdom? Here it is. That this wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities. That is, the powers that be. How are you going to testify? How are you going to witness to the powers? I think it's through this peace. It's through this rule of faith. So we have two measures or two rules by which we can go by. The human measure, the law, and the measure of Christ. It's in the life of Christ that we see the two measures really coming into conflict. What we see is that by the measure of the rule of man, they kill Christ. Christ dies. The best of human thoughts. You know, and I'm not just talking about Jewish or Roman or Greek. I think the best that we have results in the death of Christ, in deicide. The murder of the Messiah is the result of all sorts of forces, but what 
the earliest church fathers noticed, and, and this is what they're facing. You know, what's the biggest enemy of the church? Is it the destruction of the, the emperors are bringing on? Is it the, you know, opposition? Well, actually, no. You know what their big, biggest problem is? The people who join the church. And so even given the Bible, even given Jesus, they know something about Jesus, given Christian history, given the church, without this measure, without this understanding, without this rule of faith as the starting premise, I think the human tendency is to obliterate faith in a God who has come in the flesh. The human tendency is to kill the Messiah should he show up. And the most destructive elements to the church really weren't those who were seeking to kill and destroy the church. The most destructive element were the Christians. Now, I'm not saying anything controversial here because this is where all of the focus of the early church fathers is. We have these people coming into the church but they don't understand Christianity. And so one of the key teachers in the early church is Origen. I think his birth is 185, around 185. He is martyred, really, in 253. He's tortured. He dies of the tortures. But he writes a text. You know, he's really busy with doing a lot of things. He's writing commentaries. But he just drops everything and he realizes he has to write a book about how do you read the Bible? And he's faced with three kinds of false teaching. The first one, and maybe the biggest one, he calls them the simple ones. There are people who are coming into the church and they read the Bible. You know, they read the story about God having a hand or an arm or the eyes of God. And they picture God as corporeal, as having a body. And so they just read everything very flat and literal. But then there's another group, the Marcionites, and Marcion actually believes in two gods. He says, well, there's the God of the Old Testament, the God of the Jews, and then there's the God of the New Testament, the God of Christ. And then Origen says the Jews themselves who read literally, but actually all of these three groups are reading the Bible with a literal hermeneutic. And by the word hermeneutic, that just means how you interpret, how you read the Bible. My point here is they're missing the rule of faith. They're really missing the gospel. They're doing it all. They're coming to church. They've accepted Jesus. You know, they're doing everything they think that is right. And they're destroying the church. And so Origen's task in the book that is called On First Principles He's going to lay out an understanding. You've got to understand these basic things or you're not getting it. And it's really the first book in the world about reading the Bible. And what he's saying is only in the incarnation will the dualisms, the hostility, you know, that Paul is describing, only through the incarnation will the contradictions in the world, in Scripture, in humanity, find a unifying principle. And so he insists the absolute unity of the message of Scripture. He's saying it's unified. But he's saying they're unified or they're ma we make sense of it if we read it through Christ. 
And then the God who is revealed in both Testaments, we understand he's a peacemaker. It fits, the old and the new fit together. And so we can call this origins peaceful hermeneutic strategy. And maybe it's most clear in his reading of the book of Joshua. You know, he talks about Israel and he'll talk about Israel of the flesh. He says this is typical of those, that it, those who read Joshua without putting Christ in there. They read it literally. He says that they've understood nothing in the book except wars and the shedding of blood. And as a result, they themselves are incited to excessive savageries. They're always fed by wars and strife. And in this passage, Horigen spells out his point of how to read, but he says, After the presence of my Lord Jesus Christ poured the peaceful light of knowledge into human hearts, since according to the apostle, and here he quotes the verse we read, he himself is our peace. He teaches us peace from this very reading of wars. For peace is returned to the soul if its own enemies, sins and vices are expelled from it. So we read according to the teaching of our Lord and it serves to equip us for a battle not according to the flesh but against the spiritual enemies that proceed from our heart. Who's our biggest enemy? Well, we are our biggest enemy. Namely, evil thoughts, thefts, false testimony, slanders, and other enemies of our soul. And so Origen is describing the powers that rule the world in the human heart and the means of defeating them through a proper Bible reading, reading the Bible with a peaceful hermeneutic. And he describes the spiritual reading that it will give you the very breath of the Holy Spirit. You want the power of God. Well, this is the reading strategy. He says this peaceable new life is built on his notion that, first of all, that the incarnation demands, we have really, you know, it's called On First Principles, but it's a very complicated book. Because he realizes he's got to change up people's entire worldview, their whole understanding of who God is, what reality is. And so he begins, he just talking about that the extension of incarnation, of the incarnation of Christ, constitutes Bible reading. This is the most essential sacrament. He says, as the people listen to scripture, letting words penetrate their minds, they're partaking of the body of Christ. It's as if they were celebrating the Lord's Supper. It's all a part of a similar understanding. You don't let the bread fall on the floor. Well, so too with the Word of God. You reverently attend to God's Word. And so Origen's peaceful hermeneutic, it's aimed at harmonizing antagonisms, first of all, in our conceptions of God. You know, think Marcion here, actually two gods. Our conceptions of scripture, origin says, this sh shouldn't be here. So what, what is it doing for us? Well, he's saying it's pointing us to Christ. We read deeper. That there is this larger concern, though, on his part. What is the situation? Well, he's creating disciples, but disciples that can endure martyrdom. 
literally seven of his students, he's 18 years old by the way, and they've said, Origen, you train the, the new catechumens, the new, new Christians. But of course he's training them to die. They have a list of at least seven of his students that they come and torture. You know, this isn't a pleasant death. Now, actually, if you're a Roman citizen, they just cut off your head. But if you're not a Roman citizen, they're going to torture you. And so he's training these students. He wants to create in them this capacity to endure torture, to endure violence without themselves giving in to the violence. His picture is, well, if we don't do this, there is no word, you know, from God apart from the incarnation of Jesus and in, apart from our witness to Jesus. That is, we continue the incarnation and specifically the way we continue the incarnation is through martyrdom. And of course, you know the word martyr just means witness. You want to witness to Jesus? Well, it's there in the way you die. Origen's father had been martyred when he was a young boy. Origen, I think he's 17. You know, they take away his father. And of course he says, well, I'm going to die too. I want to die with my dad. And his mother grabs up all his clothes and hides them. <laughs> he misses martyrdom the first time around. Eusebius, the church historian, tells the story. He says, when Severus began to persecute the churches, glorious testimonies were given everywhere by the athletes of religion. And you understand what he's talking about here. These are people who are dying in the Colosseum. He says, this was especially the case in Alexandria, to which city, as to a most prominent theater, athletes of God were brought from Egypt and Thebes according to their merit and won crowns from God through their great patience under many tortures and every mode of death. That is, you know, he's painting this picture, they're bringing these Christians in to die, but it becomes, even for the Christians, a show, a witness to Christ. He says, among these was Leonides, this is Origen's father, who was beheaded while his son was still young. So torture and death called for preparation. He's describing it on the order of an athlete preparing to win a contest. Eusebius tells of origin, you know, his father's gone to die. He has no clothes. The only thing he can do is write a letter. And he writes a letter. It's one of the earliest recorded things we have from origin. He encourages his father to face the martyrdom. He says, take heed, do not change your mind on our account. It was easy to get out of, you know, just to renounce Christ. And this letter then is the earliest record. Origen is going to write book after book. He's one of the most prolific writers of the church. And so from age 18, he's training these catechumens and he understands, okay, we've got to prepare them to die. And not just die any old way, but they've got to shine. They've got to witness in their death. And so Eusebius gives the account of several students, I think there's seven, who in quick succession are arrested, tortured, and martyred. 
And one of the bright students, the church now celebrates uh, the way that Potamania, uh, they took burning pitch and they put it all over her body. They'd sprinkle it on her body. From It says from the sole of her feet to the crown of her head. And the officer of the court that was in charge of overseeing her death was so moved by the manner of her death that he converted to Christ. And not long after that, his own soldiers, you know, he was supposed to swear an oath. And he said, well, I can't swear an oath. I've converted to Christianity. And his own soldiers turned on him and they killed him. They martyred him. As Eusebius describes Origen's end, that is, as an old man, I think Origen is now 68 years old. He survived all of these persecutions. But they arrest him and they begin to torture him. And they don't want to kill him. They want to torture him and, and they realize killing him is no, serving no end. He suffered bonds and bodily tortures, Eusebius says, torments under the iron collar and in the dungeon. And then they put him on the rack and stretched him for four spaces. And he bore patiently the threats of fire and whatever other things were inflicted by his enemies. Now he didn't die immediately, but he died very soon after from the wounds of his torture. But Eusebius says, what words he left after these things, full of comfort to those needing aid. A great many of his epistles show with truth and accuracy. In other words, he's a martyr writing for martyrs in order to prepare them to live a life defeating death, even in death. And Eusebius saying he proved true. He was a martyr for the faith. He was a true witness. And so the pattern, of course, that Christians are emulating, they're reenacting, they're repeating what happened to Christ. He was tortured. He was crucified. And even as they're killing him, people are saying, surely this was the Son of God. He's defeating those who killed him in the manner of his death and in his defeat of death in resurrection. And so the martyr is repeating the pattern of Christ. He faces the principalities and powers, the emperor, the religious powers. And it's really a kind of hermeneutical contest. You know, who's reading rightly? There's two realms of truth or two realms of power pitted against one another in which life and death are not just defining the struggle. Actually, these are the powers. I think one of the powers is the power of death. And that's the measure, that's the means that they would use. And the other is the power of life in the face of death. And the state is going to use the power of death. It's going to prove its truth in displaying the broken, crucified, naked, terrorized body of Christ. And his followers, they're going to do the same thing to his followers. And so the human body marks the site in which the social, the political body, the religious body is going to impress its truth on the human body. Torture and death are a means of establishing a regime of truth. And that's why a martyr is the witness to a counter-truth. Torture poses a potential hermeneutical crisis. 
And it really, though, doesn't differ much from the hermeneutical challenges of everyday life. This is part of Origen's point. He says if we can prepare for martyrdom, we can also prepare for living out the life of Christ. You know, the common passions of life. Origen describes avarice or greed. He says greed can breed an exponential desire for money such that one begins to acquire money through force and then you're shedding blood. And this is kind of a hermeneutical failure, but it demonstrates an inward greed. And this inward greed can become an outward violence such that a natural desire becomes full-blown demonic theater. And so in the exegetical strategy of the state, the tortured, the maimed, the killed are a sign of the power. That's the worst you can do. The sovereign power of Rome is proving itself in those it's killing. It proves its final and all-powerful word in the flesh of its victims. And the tortured, you know, they're non-persons. That's Jesus. He's not a citizen. We've just watched the documentary on the Holocaust. This is the way the Nazis treated the Jews. They said, they're lice. We need to kill them. They're parasites. And in their humiliation and otherness, the victim then marks the personhood, the torturer proclaiming his personhood in his power over the victim. And so the cross or the instrument of torture, let's not forget that's what it is, is the clearest demarcation of two regimes of truth. There are two measures, you know. There's those who crucify, there's their measure, and there's those who are crucified. Ambrose is one of Origen's patrons, but Ambrose is about to be arrested, and he knows they're going to torture him. And so Origen begins preparing his own patron for torture and death. He says to Ambrose, you have to undergo first an inner martyrdom so that when it comes to being tortured, you're not going to defy yourself with any untoward thought or untoward action toward the torturers. That is, you cannot even in the midst of your agony be diverted from your complete devotion to God. And so you must willingly and without anger, he says, confess your faith and in this way bring the rage of the torture into contrast with your own tranquility. And of course this just happens again and again. They keep killing people and the more people they kill, the more Christians they produce. This is why they say the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. But he says, the first thing you have to do is ground yourself in the word of God. And so there are two systems on each side of the cross. And Origen understood his task is, okay, I have to fill out the alternative to violence. We have to body forth. We have to enflesh the alternative in the same manner as Christ. And so his intense Christian and intellectual response to this state-sponsored terror. It resists the Romans' efforts to impose its own violence, its own discipline on bodies through a 
nonviolent discipline, a counter asceticism, we might say. You're going to oppose the empire. You're going to oppose the interpretation of the world, not through violent means, but in the manner of your death. That's the way you present an alternative. And so just as the heretic, just as the literalist, disfigures the body of the biblical text, in the same mode, the torturer would disfigure the flesh of the victim in service of violence. And so what arises in the body of Christ is an alternative meaning attached to bodies, attached to letters. And this is origin. He says, here's the opening of the spirit. You want to encounter the spirit of God? Guess where you encounter the spirit? As the victim of human violence. As Origen describes it, reading the Bible rightly according to the flesh, soul, and spirit. That is, you have to read all three things. It includes a right understanding of God. It includes a right understanding of the world. And only one with this right understanding can endure torture. That's a, it's a quite a contrast, but he's saying you have to comprehend these things or you won't endure. Reading by the Spirit or a figural reading is a means of freeing knowledge from its captivity to power. Reading Scripture rightly is a spiritual exercise through which you can cultivate a nonviolent interpretation, a nonviolent hermeneutic. And it's this hermeneutic, it embraces this broader signification, you know, of the meaning of things, both in Scripture and in the world. And so according to Origen, Christ, in his silence, under the scourge and the many outrages, manifested a courage and patience superior to that of any of the Greeks. And what he means here is there were Greek martyrs. You remember Socrates was a kind of martyr, right? He drank the hemlock. But he says the witness of Christ in death is very different. He says, when Jesus was being mocked and was clothed in a purple robe and the crown of thorns was put on his head and when he took the reed in his hand for a scepter, he showed the highest meekness, the greatest composure. He said nothing either ignoble or angry to those who ventured to do such terrible things to him. Origin comparison is that of two world systems and Christ's Nonviolent response is the sign of an alternative, peaceful understanding. And that's what we are to embody. That is what the church is to continue on in. That's the hermeneutic. That's the rule of faith by which we read. Putting on the mind of Christ, interpreting through the gospel, through the analogy of faith, means we embody an alternative understanding and we body it forth, we witness forth to the world. The peace of Christ is the means that we do this and it's the goal. The fullness of the Trinity revealed in the incarnation is the reality by which we understand God. It's very, you know, in a sense technical, but it's only in that way that we can completely put on the peace of Christ. Maybe in this way we are the peace of Christ. We are the incarnation. We are the alternative 
nonviolent reality which counters the violence of the world. He himself is our peace and we extend this peace into the world. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.